It's now our privilege to hear God speak his, his word. This is from the, the 25th Psalm, which is uh, of David, where he speaks uh, to God and uh, about God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, or let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bob, as always, for reading that. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jordan. I'm the youth director here, if you don't know me. Uh, Pastor Nick had me close out, uh, actually start the series of James, and then also close it out here today. So uh, we've been working through the book of James since the beginning of the fall. And now here we are. Back then it was like 70 degrees still. It's crazy. But now we've got snow kind of nonstop, and the temperature has dropped quite a bit. Um, and we're officially in the season of Advent next Sunday. Uh, but our passage today is actually kind of a perfect pre-Advent uh, passage, and it may seem 
weird, but there's so much wisdom here, and each week gives us something new to ponder. And so today I want to look at just kind of in what context, though, uh, that, that we've been looking at. You know, James is giving us his wisdom, but for what? He's telling us to keep hope, to keep our eyes on Christ and to expect him. Uh, he told us this in the context of trials, that the everyday things we go through in life ultimately are used by God to develop us for this. Um, and he warns the rich that in the kingdom of heaven, the homeless person in Christ has equal standing with the millionaire Christian. Uh, that's crazy thought, right? Uh, last week, Pastor Nick talked uh, about that some more, where James gives this strong, solemn warning uh, that our riches fade. And I think that's an important lesson because at a time where wealth is at an all-time high, especially here in the States, uh, we feel impervious. Uh, I'm going to throw a number out there. I'm not very good at math, but, you know, if you were born the same year as Christ uh, and you were to make a flat $30,000 a month, okay, up from that day all the way to now, if you were somehow alive, okay, no taxes, no inflation, right, you'd have about $750 million today, okay, which is pretty stunning when you think about it, right? I mean, you have billionaires, right? And so most of us would be thrilled to be making that kind of money, and yet we have people in our country who are worth over $100 billion. Again, I'm not good at math, but that means that, you know, $750 million to that person is less than 1% of their wealth. And you think of how much it takes just to get there. And so I say that simply to reinforce this point, right, which is just that James is saying that the rich need to be humble and how much harder that is today, you know, than it was then, right? Uh, there's just an unimaginable amount of wealth. And so, uh, you know, like I said, try telling Jeff Bezos, right, that we'll all be judged, right? I imagine he feels really comfy um, with, with what he's got. But James, he moves towards that general truth in the passage last week, saying that, to, that we need to be ready for, uh, for judgment, but also encourages us to endure, promising blessing to those that do. And that leads us to today's passage, which is a practical look. Um, and James is looking at, at exactly how to endure in these final days. Uh, and so before we look at James 5, 13 through 15, let's pray. Father, I just ask that, uh, that you be with me, uh, your servant, as flawed as I may be, that you would speak through me. Uh, Lord, that, uh, that you'd open the minds and the hearts of the people here, your people, so that they might receive your word and be moved by it and so inspired by it that they want to live more fully for you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. So James 5, 13 through 15, we're going to be looking at uh, 13 through 20 today. But 13 through 15 says this. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. How do we get through life as we await the return of Christ? Well, James makes it rather simple. We endure through prayer, right? If you're suffering, you pray. If things are going well, we offer prayers of praise. And there's a reliance on God that James wants us to develop. Humanity is naturally prone to only seek God when we are in dire trouble. But James says that we need, that we need him at all times, that we ought to seek this relationship with God so that we are at all times prepared for when Christ returns. 
to not be relying on God is to be living in some aspects of your life on your own, right? So if you're not bringing it to God, you're keeping it for yourself and trying to make that work. That's the natural implication. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Romans 12 famously says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You've probably heard the analogy before, but God is not your fire extinguisher, right? Though he can also extinguish your flames. But God cannot be used by us. We cannot manipulate him. And hear me clearly, I'm not saying that we shouldn't manipulate God. I'm saying we cannot manipulate God. If you think you can use God for your own needs, for your own ends, well, good luck. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. This is a good thing, though, brothers and sisters. We serve a God who is infinitely wise, who sees all and knows all, and whose will happens even when we are actively opposed to it. How much more so is God able when we suffer out of obedience for him? And in this week before Thanksgiving, are we thankful for God and his beautiful attributes, even as everything else around us is seemingly crumbling? Whether things are great or they've never been worse, what a beautiful thing to remember, the steadiness of Christ, that the Father still sits on his throne. And so what about this calling on the elders for prayer when we're sick? That seems kind of weird, right? Uh, That's not a thing that we're accustomed to. And what's this about oil? Are these essential oils? Is this what the Bible is getting at? I don't think so. Uh, It's just regular olive oil, uh, but perhaps they're onto something there. And it was often used to ceremonially anoint God's people as a way to consecrate them and to sort of set them apart. It's sort of like asking for special favor. But this raises questions for us, though, I think, if, at least if you're like me, right? So number one, does God really heal people today? Does God really heal people today? And two, does the strength of our faith then influence the likelihood of God answering that prayer for healing? So if I'm a strong Christian, does that mean that you know, God will heal me, and if I'm a weak Christian, he won't. Okay. I'll, I'll quickly answer that first question. Does God really heal people? And I'll answer that so that I can give a fuller answer to the second question. But the answer is yes. God really does heal people, even today. But we need to recognize that it is a miracle when it happens. I mean, that's even how it seems to be referred to here in this passage. Uh, a miracle sort of naturally means, then, that it's not something that we should expect to happen, necessarily, but that it can happen. And also, uh, it's a thing that it means that there's no formula to follow. There's not a way to make it come out the way that you want it to, to guarantee that you get what you want. Like I said earlier, God cannot be manipulated. So you can't say, okay, I'll pray a hundred times and I'll give, you know, a thousand dollars to the church and then that will, that will do it. Unfortunately, we have peddlers of a false gospel today preaching a message of what we call the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is wicked. It takes so many of the true and beautiful things about God and it distorts them to such a degree that it reshapes God into a personal idol, a slave to our own will. It recognizes God as the giver of all gifts, but turns him into a vending machine. I put in faith and uh, often some quote-unquote seed money that will both demonstrate how much faith I have 
and will also enable the false teacher the ability to do ministry. Now you get these situations where uh, people are asking the congregation to give money so they can do more effective ministry, lots of money, right? Uh, but you, you put in your faith and you put in that money and out pops whatever you prayed for and perhaps some material luxuries to go along with it. And I think that's a disgusting understanding of who God is, imagining not that God's will be done but our own. And it's not just that supposed preachers get rich off this theology, although that's terrible too. It's that people are shamed into thinking that if they're sick or their kid gets sick or if their marriage falls apart, it's because they didn't show enough faith or commitment to God. There are heartbreaking stories where people go bankrupt, supporting these ministries and preachers, all out of faith that God will heal their kid. And when that doesn't happen, it's not the preacher's fault, and it's not even God's fault. It's their fault. They alone carry the burden of having failed. And how can they possibly feel like God is there for them when they believe that they lost uh, this person that they love due to a relationship that wasn't strong enough with God. And what about the preacher? You have examples of people literally raising $65 million for a luxury private jet uh, so that they can minister more effectively. Okay, they're, they're taking money from the poor. They're asking their poor congregants to give this. And I'll add, too, that if these preachers have the gift of healing and believe that healing is the promised sign of a true faith in God, why don't they hang out at children's hospitals? Why don't they go to the sick? They don't. And so I say to you, if, you're, if you find yourself interested, because listen, the, the allure is real, right? Uh, we want this, uh, that sort of gospel where, where all we have to do is put something in. There's a, there's a clear formula for this. I put in this, and I get the thing that I so desperately want. If you find yourself interested in what this message promises, I plead with you to understand the true hope of the gospel. As James so clearly teaches us, it's not in the avoidance of suffering, but in the ultimate development that comes from it. As Peter says in his epistle over and over, we cannot become like Christ unless we too suffer like Christ. The gospel is centered on the fact that Christ suffered for us, that he had to suffer. But through that suffering, we are redeemed, and we, along with the world, can heal from the wreckage of sin. Jesus himself prayed, if there's any other way. And the Father's answer was that there was not. We ultimately experience salvation because of a terrible, tragic event. And God's glory is proclaimed through that, the beauty of taking broken things and restoring them. Let's continue then on in James. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Going back to answer that first question more fully, does God really heal? The Bible clearly affirms that there are times when God does. We can look at the story of Hezekiah, where he's told that he will die. And he prays that God would extend his life, and God grants him that out of mercy. James gives us the example of Elijah praying for the weather, and God granting those prayers to him. Obviously, Jesus healed people as part of his ministry. But it is also important to note that it was not the central focus of his ministry. And that he would, in fact, not heal everyone that he came across, knowing that the gospel being preached was the true healing needed for the world. 
right? You have examples of Jesus literally leaving crowds of sick people to go to the next town to preach the gospel. Why? It's because that's not the central focus. Which is to say, God really does heal, in rare cases, when it is his will. Our prayers sometimes are not answered in the ways that we want them to be. But uh, the beautiful thing about Christ is that we don't get the things that we want. That God is able to do something far more glorious uh, than the things that we want. Even in our deaths, perhaps especially so. Romans 8 reminds us that God works all things for our good, even if we cannot see it. So when we are wanting something in life, some relief to our sufferings, whether that be stress at our jobs, a marriage that is strained or falling apart, uh, or from our illnesses, we should pray. And we should ask the elders to anoint us with oil and to pray over us. What we will experience is relief no matter what, whether it be through miraculous healing or through the support of a Christian community that cares for us. And that's an element we don't want to miss here. And it's ultimately James's focus here. We endure to the end through our faith and through our community with brothers and sisters in Christ. This righteous prayer, it's not so much the level of a person's ability to pray or a prayer that is full of faith per se, at least not like the ways we tend to think. The righteous prayer is not so much a faith that believes God is absolutely able to answer our prayers and will in fact answer them in the ways that we hope for, but more so a faith that trusts God no matter what the answer is. Isn't that what Jesus' prayer in the garden proves, right? He says, not my will, but yours. And Jesus is the most righteous, right? Sure hope so, since it's his righteousness that becomes our own when we experience salvation from our sins. So there's nothing wrong in praying for healing. In fact, James commands us to. But our prayers, they shape us. They help us to align our wills with God's. And so ultimately, the righteous man's prayers are answered in the way that he wants, because what he wants is what God wants and wills. That may seem like sort of a cop-out answer, but it's, that's the reality of it. That's what God is trying to teach us. And if healing comes, we praise God, because we know that through that healing or restoration, that God's glory is magnified. If we do not experience the relief we are hoping for, we trust that our suffering brings God glory in some way, perhaps by demonstrating to people that life is not about comfort or personal glory, but it is about our glorious God who loves us and chosen to redeem us. And there's another major thing to think through here that uh, you may have noticed. If my level of faith is not necessarily what makes my prayers effective, what about my level of sin then? Asked another way, are my trials because of my sin? And man, that's a loaded question, isn't it? But it's a real question, I think. If you've ever gone through a period of suffering, you maybe have asked yourself, like, you know, did I do something to sort of bring this on, you know? What did I do? How did I wrong God to bring this about? So let's take a moment to consider biblically what is true. First, there are times when God does use illnesses because of people's sins. That's kind of a hard thing for us to accept. But there are times when God does use illness because of people's sin. We know a famous example with the plagues in ancient Egypt, right? Uh, Under Pharaoh, those plagues came specifically because the Pharaoh refused to set the Hebrew slaves free and to listen to God's anointed prophet, Moses. Okay, so that's a pretty clear example. 
King David is told that he would have trouble in his household because of his sin with Bathsheba, which people are quick to point to the death of his newborn son, uh, which is true, but we also forget that his son Absalom formed a mutiny and tried to take the whole kingdom away from David, right, and ended up dying in that process. But there's even this insinuation by Jesus. In John 5, after Jesus heals someone, he tells him, Go and sin no more, lest something worse befall you. That's a difficult thing for us to accept, like I said. But I think uh, it is balanced in Scripture as well. Take a look at uh, John 9. The Pharisees see this blind man, and they ask Jesus, Who sinned to cause the blindness, him or his parents? And Jesus replies that neither sinned, but that this condition came about so that he could be healed that day to display the glory of God. So sometimes our illnesses may be caused by God, but the Bible by no means says that that's the case every time, or even most of the time. So the second reality of one who is sick is that sometimes the sin itself is not the cause of the illness, but that illness is being used by God to convict you of your sins. And so perhaps the illness forces you to slow down in life and allows you more time to reflect on where you're at in your relationship with God. Uh, I'll admit, I don't really know where to find clear examples of this biblically, but it is a testimony that I hear often from people, from fellow believers, who, you know, they suffer something and maybe they're kind of bedridden for a while or they're not able to kind of go about their, their everyday life. Uh, verse 16 is perhaps hinting at this idea. We, we can't say definitively, but again, I've heard this testimony over and over. When people are forced to, to just slow down, that they say, this has been really good because there were just some, some cracks in my relationship with God. What we can say about verse 16, regardless of, of uh, whether or not uh, God used it, is that we are to confess the ways in which we, we wrong our brothers and sisters, and we are to confess them to them, right? So when you sin against your brother and sister, you're supposed to go to them and confess it. If you sinned against someone, it's good to go to God and to confess it, but you're avoiding a level of accountability when you don't go to the person directly and apologize. In a sense, you're only half confessing, right? In order to truly be repentant, you need to confess to all the parties directly involved. Otherwise, you're looking for a way to avoid accountability. Full restoration can't happen in that case. Now, I'll quickly add, right, that sometimes full reconciliation can't happen on this side of eternity, right? Either because the sin was so great that it caused permanent damage here on earth, um, thinking of an abuser or something like that where they no longer have the right or the ability uh, to reach out to talk to their victim, Um, or perhaps you've wronged someone that has since passed away, okay? That's another example of something where you, you just, you don't have a way to confess your sins to them any longer, right? In cases like that, right, you, you do confess to God and you remember that Christ is infinitely more good and more able than you are bad. But we rest in that. Our community is key, though. We sharpen one another and grow together and we actually demonstrate the gospel even when we screw up so long as we seek to reconcile and admit our wrongs and the ways that we hurt each other. So the, the third possibility here is a, a purely a, tr- a tool of spiritual growth. As already alluded to, Jesus told the Pharisees in John 9 that sometimes people get an illness simply for the glory of God. Like I said, that's a hard truth to grasp. We really don't like that idea. And the world sees that as God cruelly playing with his creation. But when we think back to what James said about prayer, 
the righteous man's prayer is effective because his own will is aligned with God. And it is truly a beautiful thing to see someone who willingly offers up their body to the Lord, to use their condition for him. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic whose faith uh, is just so inspirational. Her life, as hard as it has been, showcases what life is truly about. Uh, Christ seemingly took everything away from her. She was, I think, 19 when uh, she had a diving accident. She was training to be in the Olympics, right? This was her whole life. Uh, 19, losing all function in her arms and legs. Um, that's tragic, right? It is very tragic. And yet, she thanks God that that happened to her because she said it was that event that got her to forsake everything else in life and give it to God. So today, as, as hard as it is for her, she's probably in her 60s now, as hard as it is for her, she still thanks God that that happened. So we can go back uh, and read the beginning of James to shed more light on that. But this is what James wants us to see, right? That these trials, these experiences, they ultimately, they shape us, they develop us, but also it gives glory to God. So then the question is, how do we determine which one we are? I want to first express, I, I understand that some of you live in this headspace where every bad thing that happens to you leaves you wondering if it's because of some sin you've committed. You wonder if you've wronged God in some way, if you've let him down. And I wish I could just tell you that's never the case that you're suffering because of some sin, but that's not true. As we said earlier, though, it's also not the case that every sickness you experience is the result of some unconfessed sin. Regardless, if, if that's you, if, that, if you're the kind of person that you're constantly thinking that, uh, what I would say to you is that you must remember that Christ is the one that sanctifies you. And when you stand before the throne, the only thing that matters is if you trust that Jesus is good enough to save you. I wish I could say more of that, but rest in that, even as you wrestle here on earth, working out your salvation. But how do you determine? Like I said, there's not really a formula given. It's not, okay, you look at these events, and if it's this, then okay, then that's when God's going to give you a sickness uh, that you've got to try to figure out, right? There's not a formula, but we're encouraged to pray, and we're, we're supposed to bring it to the elders. And as James is about to get to, we rely on our community. Right? How many of you, you've, you've gone uh, to brothers and sisters here, you've uh, explained something in your life going on, and they have given you clarity as to what, is, what they see, right? They've given you spiritual clarity on that. James closes out with this. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. As a way to get through these days before Christ's return, James wants us to rely on one of the most important gifts given to us from God. And that's these people in this room. It's, it's our community, our brothers and sisters. We want to stand before the Lord in good standing with him. And the church helps us to do that by bearing our burdens, by praying with us. That when we sin, they, they help <laughs> hold us accountable and they remind us of the gospel. James even has this sense of watching over each other, right? That, that we're calling our brothers and sisters to repentance. We really don't like that idea either, right? It's awkward, it's messy, 
And uh, at least if you're like me, it almost seems hypocritical, right? How can I say that so-and-so is in sin when, gosh, I look at my own life and I, I just think of all the ways in which I am flawed. But as I like to remind people, right, the Bible does not say to not judge others, and it's preposterous to suggest that it does. Think for a moment on how we're supposed to discern what is good, what is true, what is noble, what is gospel-centered, or even what is sin, if we aren't supposed to judge. That's nonsense. What we are told to do, though, biblically, is to judge fairly and mercifully. Fairly and mercifully. The second part of that famous do not judge passage in Matthew 7 is that we need to judge how we want to be judged. So if you're expecting someone to be perfect and to never sin, yikes, like you're, that's what you're setting yourself up to be judged by. That's the measure in which people are going to judge you. The Bible says you'll be judged in that same way. Instead, we should judge only the ways we think is the most loving and the most uh, loving way possible and with the attention to see repentance and a strengthened faith as a result and not to inflict pain on another person, right? You might be 100% correct when you're calling them out. You know, you see a sin, it is clearly sin, you're calling them out for it, but you judge in a way where you're trying to claim vengeance for yourself, right? If they've wronged you, uh, you know, you're wanting them to feel bad for it. And that's not biblical either. And that's a problem, right? Because that belongs to God. God is the one that will get vengeance. So we judge someone trusting that they had the best of intentions and give them every excuse you can think of, right? You don't need to diminish the sin in order to do that. Uh, you know, we can look at, you know, say, a murderer who had a terrible life growing up, right? You've heard these stories, right? And we can sympathize and think like, man, the system, the world really failed this kid. And at the same time, you look at the crime that they committed and you say, you know, prison is the right thing to do, right? This is the place that the person needs to be. Um, they don't have to be opposed to each other. And so be gracious in your judging of others as you call people to repentance. And as Matthew 7 says, make sure you don't have a log in your eye as you try to get the speck out of another person's eye. Uh, that's where it becomes hypocritical. But there's another part to this, though, that James hits on, and it's this idea that when we call people to repentance, we're helping them. Somewhere along the way, we've made this mistake that when we call people out in their sins, that we're somehow harming them. And the easiest example I, I see of this is when pastors fall into sin, right? And they're removed from the pulpit, right? They, they're no longer a pastor of a church. Uh, I, I've seen this so many times, and it infuriates me every time. But you'll hear people say something to the effect of, well, you know, this person really helped me, you know, like they were, they, they taught the Bible so well, right? I just loved listening to them. And so I, I mean, hopefully best case scenario, they're just saying, so I, I can't believe that they actually fell into sin. But often what is said is, you know, they said they're sorry, we should just be able to move on and allow them to come back uh, and be the pastor. The reality is though, is that you know, not only are we trying to protect the congregants in a situation like that, but we're also trying to help the fallen pastor, okay? They have fallen into sin, right? Their job, their public perception, everything, it falls under the priority of their spiritual health. And so when we want to avoid calling people to repentance, we actually end up giving them a false gospel that reinforces this idea that because they're a good preacher or because they're too valuable to remove, that their gifts are truly what makes them precious in God's sight. And that 
is just a lie, right? That is anti-gospel because you tell that person that they have to earn God's favor, that it is truly because of their abilities. You give them confidence for that last day when they should have none. Jesus even says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not being literal, but he is noting the seriousness of sin, that it is better to not sin than to be fully functioning, right? To have your full ability and freedom in life. When you call someone to repentance, you are helping save them. And so we direct our brothers and sisters to Christ. And be receptive to a brother or sister when they uh, lovingly correct you. They want what's best for you. And so that's James's playbook for getting through life. We live for Christ knowing that everything happening is happening for a reason, whether we can see it or not, and it will be instrumental in our spiritual growth. We rely on Christ and his goodness, but we also rely on each other as the body of Christ. So let's live into that as we head into Advent. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God that gives us far more than we deserve. Lord, that uh, as we go about life, we actively make things worse for ourselves, that somehow, even in that, you give it purpose. You reshape it. You reclaim it and redeem it for you so that it is not just a thing that we're doing, but that it is now a thing that you are doing as well. And so, uh, Father, as we go through these trials in life, uh, whatever they may be in each of our lives, Uh, whether it is a physical illness, whether it's strained relationships, whether it's uh, uh, just a stressful job, whatever it might be, Lord, we pray that you'd give us relief from that. Lord, that that we would be spared the pain and agony of those things. But Father, we pray above all that, that as we go through those things, that we continue to see the beauty of Christ that we see the ways in which you're using it, the ways in which we are growing and learning to rely on you. Lord, I pray that as we go about life, as we are sinners, that you would turn us from sin. Lord, that we would see the error of our ways, that we would uh, confess to you, confess to those that we harm. And Lord, that you'd give us the endurance we need to get through to the day when we are reunited with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would Help us to be faithful members of the body as we go to lift one another up, as we encourage one another. Lord, just pray that, uh, uh, that together we would strengthen each other as iron sharp, sharpens iron. And Father, we pray all these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.